Welcome everyone to the Manage Self Lead Other Others podcast. My name is Nina Sunday, and our goal is to upskill and have interesting discussions for experienced and aspiring managers. And today, my guest is Nils Vesk. Uh, Nils is the author of Innovation Archetype, which is all about democratizing innovation. I've seen him speak many times. I follow his posts on social media. I consider him one of the big thinkers in this country. Uh, Nils has a background in design, which means that he brings to all of his uh, uh, authorship and all of his presentations and his membership uh, site he brings design thinking, he brings futurism, and he brings innovation. So welcome, Nils. It's a true honour to have you on the podcast. Gosh, thank you for having us, Nina. And with an introduction like that, I, I think I should be sitting down listening to myself. But uh, very kind with the words. Thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, um, we, we've been having a chat uh, prior to today about you know the nature of innovation and the challenges that managers have uh, on two sides of the coin, like managers can be so busy and so uh, pushed for results that where do they get time for innovation? At the same time, um, they they may want to innovate, but the, the culture doesn't um, support that. So how important is it for managers to encourage innovation within their teams? I think you've almost got to, I'm not trying to sidestep the question, but I feel like you've almost got to ask a bigger question, and that is, why does the organisation want to innovate? Because if the organisation or the team doesn't have the value for innovation, that they don't see the value that innovation can bring, then it's sort of, you know, why, you know, why should we be going out there to innovate? Um, but so if I was to answer that rhetorical question, I would probably say that the reason why innovation is so important and subsequently why managers or leaders should be encouraging their teams to innovate is that innovation can make a massive difference. It, it, innovation can be on process, innovation can be in customer service, and innovation can be on product. Now, I think traditionally most people think innovation, it's just about product. So, oh, only the R&D people can do that, or only the marketing people can do that, and everyone else gets left behind. And, and that's an absolute furphy. And the reality is when you look at how some organizations are evaluated for the innovation, more often than not, it actually comes down to how innovative their business model is, which then relates to the processes they have in place. And the product is almost, it is a byproduct of the innovative processes they've got in place. So that's one of the reasons why um, innovation is so important. The second reason is that it actually is a great relief from the concept of boredom. I mean, believe it or not, no matter how cool our organization might be, we get caught up in, you know, day-to-day -day sort of dross and um, innovation is giving people an outlet, an opportunity to, to look for new ideas that can be exciting. It, it can bring in a, a whole new lease of life and an energy that wasn't there before. So they're just some of the reasons that innovation is important and why a leader or a manager, I think, should be encouraging it. Well, I heard a couple of things that you mentioned there, Nils. Um, just 
the, the last thing was really about staff retention, retaining good people, because I can remember before I had my own business, I was an employee and I remember they didn't want any of my creative ideas, so I left. It's like they mm. lost a good person. Uh, is that a common thing that happens, that the best people leave because innovation isn't happening and their talent isn't being used? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I see it all the time. And usually where these people end up is they create a little startup and, um, you know, they end up Become selling back. That's it. They, or they end up selling their business um, back to the company that sort of didn't listen to their ideas for a, a massive amount. And kudos to them for taking the effort and making that effort to do it. But, yeah, if, if we had actually simply created some structure and some space and the right culture to listen to those ideas, to listen to our people and give them that support, then we wouldn't need to do that. We wouldn't be losing people by all means. And the other thing you mentioned in there was just a passing comment about when an organisation is being evaluated. Was that the word you used? Who's evaluating yeah. an organisation and making innovation one of the attributes? Well, so, I mean, you know, we, we only need to look at like a Forbes or any of those sort of major magazines when they will do a, you know, who are the most innovative uh, company in the world and you know these are always a little bit subjective but the the best ones out there will look across three different areas they will look across process they will look at, around product and they will look around service um, and you're finding that there are a lot more companies that traditionally people go what well, but they don't really have a product you know but oh no, but they've got a service or they've got an amazing process and and I think that the tide has changed even though you know, um, R&D labs, um, you know, been around for a long time. And we, we all know that business models and processes can all be innovated. And, but it's good to see that people external to, um, how would you say, you know, that the media will start to realise that an innovative company doesn't have to have a, a whiz-bang product. It could be what's happening internally. And I think that's also then being uh, reflected. And if you look at valuation of a company, so if I was a venture capitalist or I was looking at purchasing a company doing a mergers and acquisition, when we look at the, um, the, the, the sort of calculation, what they do is the valuation is a multiple of the EBIT, the earnings before income tax. Um, and the higher that multiple is, the more valued the company is. And what determines the value? One of those things, believe it or not, is process, the quality of the processes. So if you can innovate around your process, then that's automatically going to increase the valuation or the multiple of your EBIT. Um, so that's just one of the reasons when we're looking at valuation, process shouldn't be a boring word, actually should be an innovative word. And it's probably one of the, I would say, like one of the areas where we really have opportunity to innovate um, above our competitors. And this is where managers, it doesn't really have to fall on their shoulders, does it? They can delegate innovation or innovation tasks to the team. And I'm thinking along the lines of continuously automating standardised processes. I've heard people say, look, if I have to do the same process over and over and it takes more than 30 seconds, I find a way to innovate, uh, automate it. Uh, do you find that companies are not innovating enough in automating processes that occur on a regular basis they keep doing the yeah, same, I think, same old yeah I, I definitely think so i mean unfortunately by human nature we are creatures of habit and seekers of comfort and 
you know, it makes it makes psychological sense to just do the same thing because we're comfortable with it. And there's that push pull of, you know, when do we push our people to go beyond our comfort levels to do something different? And uh, not not everyone likes to, you know, there, there are a lot of people uh, that will switch off and are happy to do the same thing every day. But I think, as you said, that that is one of the biggest areas where people can innovate and you know people will use different languages for it so let's say for example um let's say if someone's just got an, an an excel sheet going and they've created a shortcut that's an innovation that's a process innovation and you'd be surprised how many of those little shortcuts and workarounds or whatever you want to call them are happening that aren't recognized and yet if they were recognized i think it would inspire a lot more people to look for those things to do and um, a, a simple language that I use around this is bottlenecks. And that just makes so much more sense to people. You know, it doesn't freak them out by saying, oh, we, we need to innovate. I say, so what are your biggest bottlenecks? And, and they say, what do you mean? Well, where are your biggest pain points? Where are your customer pain points? Where are your frustrations? What, where are the biggest mistakes happening? Um, what's taking up more time than anything else? And by using that, that as a, a metaphor and simply put, it's slowing things down, and then go, well, how do we alleviate this bottleneck? How do we get rid of it? Um, you've got an area, a focus area to innovate, which is really important because a lot of companies will say, we want to innovate, but what does that actually mean? You know, do you want to improve processes, the customer service? Do you want to improve how it works for internal people uh, and the sort? The title of your book, Innovation Archetypes, suggests suggests characters and stories. And I believe one of the, the themes in your work is the use of stories to drive behavioral change. Can you talk to that? Yeah, I mean, if you were to go out and interview pretty much every kind of behavioralist that are out there, so that whether it's a psychologist, a counselor, whether it's an ethnographer, whether it's a anthropologist, um, sociologist, they would probably all agree that a story is one of the, the strongest um, tools that we have to, to create behavioral change. And by that, because when we think about how our human brain is wired, is we are wired for story. Um, it's just something that has been passed down from you know, generation to generation. And, and, and you know, when we think one of the biggest industries in the world is the entertainment industry, why? Because you know, there are stories and, and there is a, uh, a change in our mental state and emotional state that we do. And you know, the amount of research that's coming from the world of neuropsychology and neuroscience of the power of emotion has really backed up this fact that stories move us. And so if we look at how can we tap into story to change behavior for um, our team, well, we can think about it this way. We could say, well, if let's say I wanted a team to become more innovative, the first thing I need to do is define what type of innovation that we want. So I want to be very specific because if we're vague, it doesn't mean anything. So I could go, well, if I could identify what I think is an observable, measurable innovation behavior, then we can talk about it or I can tell a story about it. So I might go, oh, look, I noticed that Nina the other day, when she um, is doing a, a project planning meeting, she invites two people from outside of the immediate team to share what their thoughts might be from an external perspective. Now, that is a observable, measurable, specific behaviour. Um, and quite often what happens with innovation, we get caught up in using 
traits rather than specific behaviors. So um, a trait is, oh, we need to be more collaborative. Now you can't, I, you can't actually measure collaboration, but when you specifically say, um, do our team members invite people at the start of our project meeting to come and give external perspective? Yes, I can measure it, I can see it, and, um, and I can tell a story about it. So I could say, um, hey guys, so just one of the things that we found when we were working at our last organization was that when we invited people from other organ, you know, other external departments, we found that we often had a fresh perspective on how to overcome some of the obstacles. Um, so blah, 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 you know, and you, you could do the same about specifically when a mistake happens or something goes wrong, talk about a process and how you overcome it. And, you know, we could, we could spend a whole, you know, week talking about storytelling. I'm not, I'm not an expert on it, but the concept, I'm sure we're all familiar with the concept of the hero's journey, um, an idea that was proposed by um, the... Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell, that's right, the comparative religion expert from, from California. And for those who don't know, um, Star Wars and um, George Lucas went to him for advice around Star Wars and, and the characterization of Chewbacca and stuff like that. Anyway, but yeah, people want to, get, we want them to get across the river and, and to the gold, but that would be too easy. So there's always some obstacle and we want to see them, you know, learn and, and go through that type of stuff. So sharing a hero's journey doesn't always have to be a major failure, but overcoming something and um, sharing that that's our, our narrative, because when we think about it, I've got a narrative of what innovation means to me. Now, it is usually completely different to everyone else because I'm, I'm sold by it, I live it and breathe it. And so what we've got is when we're working in a team or an organization, we've got to go, how do we change the narrative of each individual? So we have to, need to say our narrative that we keep repeating in different formats, different versions of stories, is that this is the type of innovation that we're looking for. Yeah, a long answer, hopefully that makes sense. Oh, no, fascinating, Nils. And um, you, you talk about, you know, the, the aspect of, of making mistakes. And of course, if you're innovating, you are going to fail and you are going to make mistakes. And one, one of the very early books that I read in early in my uh, business career was uh, the very first version of Michael Gerber's The E-Myth. And he very much stated the principle that if, if a process is occurring and someone is following a process and they make an error, it's not their fault. It's usually the process doesn't have a check and balance because good people will sometimes make up for the fact that there is no check and balance, but you can't blame someone else who doesn't know, oh, you need to check that if it's not actually written in the process. So do you find that, that blaming people for errors is is counterproductive and how can a manager sort of get over the habit of doing that if, if that's what they do yeah um definitely i mean no one likes being told that they're dumb or they're wrong or they've done something and apart from maybe some <clears throat> um, disreputable councils where people will go out of their way to make something fail no one goes to work with the intention of making something fail. Everyone is, is, you know, they're doing their best with the best skills and the abilities that they have. And, and yep. Yeah, so what we need to do is to be able to get clear about identifying that um, if something wasn't working, it was the process that wasn't working properly. And if the process wasn't working, then we've got to fix it. Um, so how do you, you change a, a, a habit for that? Um, one of them is to, to use a bit of a process around mistakes and identifying mistakes. Um, 
I'm just trying to sort of think about it. But when you, when you think about what type of mistakes actually are out there, I'm just going to kind of jog something from my memory if I can. But um, really, there are three types of mistakes that happen. Um, one is a real mistake. That is when the wrong process is executed. Um, the next one is a blackout, which is when part of the process is forgotten. And the third one is a slip up. And that is when the right process is executed incorrectly. So say, for example, um, a real mistake is um, someone, uh, I've just got a new client that's come on board. I'm supposed to be, you know, help onboarding them. And um, I, rather than use the onboard process, I go straight to the accounting process and send them an invoice. You know, that's, that's a real mistake that's, that's gone on. Um, blackout might be, I've, I'm doing some invoicing and I forget to attach the PDF of the invoice or the accounts payable team forget to that. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a blackout. Um, a slip up is um, I might um, let's say let's come back to onboarding. I send them the invoice first rather than the welcome kit first, and so they go, oh God, what's this? I'm getting an invoice straight away, and and so by understanding that we can start to identify you know what those processes are, and there's a number of different. Uh, I guess, contributing factors or sources of mistakes. So one is rule-based. So do people know what they're supposed to do? The other is knowledge-based, is that do people know what to do? And then the third level is skill-based. So do people actually have the skill to do that? So that can help a, a leader or a manager quickly as well, because they go, actually, well, do they know what they're supposed to do? Do we know what's supposed to do? Or is it just inferred? Um, you know, have they been trained up on it? Do they have the skills to do it? And, and, and so starting to use some of that type of work. And I think James Reason um, is a name that comes to my mind. I think he was a organizational psychologist um, who's worked a lot in the world of aviation. Why do we have these horror plane accidents? And um, I think a lot of his thinking kind of relates to, you know, some of those concepts around that type of stuff there. James Reason is always looking for the reason for the, the thing. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> now, you've got this new book coming up in a couple of months called The Reinvention Sprint. Can you tell us about what's, uh, what's that about? Yeah, so The Reinvention Sprint was a book I, I started or I wrote last year uh, for those who are just joining us in the COVID times. And I realised that a lot of organisations were stuck and set in their way of how they would do business and, and they were really stumped as to what to do. And so um, I started getting a lot of calls from different clients, you know, saying, can you help us do this? And as I was fielding and helping out these clients, I thought, wow, there's got to be a better way to help them reinvent their product or their process or their service offering quickly, um, but most importantly, but do it in with as minimal risk as possible. Um, I'm sure we're all familiar. One of the, the biggest aversions that we have to any innovation uh, is about risk. And, you know, one of the big things I'm always working with clients is how do we minimize that risk? And, you know, how can we test this for a hundred bucks rather than spending, you know, a hundred thousand dollars or, you know, 100,000 um, hours of our team to try and go somewhere that we find it is a dead end. So yeah, essentially it helps them um, go through um, a journey of reinventing their either a product, a process or a service or just one of those components. That's fantastic. And um, how, can, uh, how can managers work with you on an ongoing basis? I think you've got uh, some sort of membership uh, site. Yeah. So um, one of the things that we launched just last year that's 
going gangbusters at the moment is a site called The Reinvention Club and thereinventionclub.com. And on this site, what we do is we help leaders and managers who are aspiring to lift their level and knowledge of innovation. So how can they lead innovation? How could they facilitate a particular innovation exercise? How could they generate insights? How could they generate ideas? How could they validate or prototype? And how do they pitch their ideas? Because we all know that often people have great ideas, but then people seem to suck at being able to communicate it and they get left by the wayside. So it's really um, a platform that each and every week people get sent some content. It might be a cheat sheet. It might be a flow chart. They all come with videos, um, bite-sized, but they really enable people to, you know, lift their skills as an innovator without having to spend, you know, $100,000 and going and doing an MBA or whatever it might be because this is specifically around innovation. That sounds fascinating. And what's one of the mistakes that that uh, someone might make when they are doing a pitch? Is it around language and not really finessing uh, how they present uh, their, their argument? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I mean, there could be a few different things. It, it's not around presentation skills. While both of us as professional speakers know that the value of, of speaking professionals, so please by all means, make sure you, you keep up your training and, and look at ways to improve your performance and communication skills. But usually what, what causes people to drop the ball when they've got a good idea is not understanding, being able to put themselves in the shoes of the team that they're communicating to. So whether that's a, a board or a CEO or some senior executives, what generally tends to happen is that people don't see the value in an idea. Um, and, you know, there's one of the things that when we come up with an idea, we get excited by it, which is great, but that doesn't always, you know, wash off into a, an effective pitch. So I often talk about three different ways that you can assess your idea and therefore you can communicate your idea. So if you can pre-screen your either your insight or your idea before you pitch it, then it will make it much more easier for people to understand. So let me let me take a step to the side and talk about an insight. So an insight is a word commonly used but seldom understood. So this is kind of the compelling reason why should we actually be even creating an idea to solve this problem? So I spoke about earlier on about the concept of bottlenecks, a pain point or frustration point. So a, a commercial insight is a, either a frustration, a desire, an aversion, or an emerging trend that up until now, no one's been able to capitalize on. So if we can go, oh, here's an insight, um, and then we can think about it in three different areas. We could say, um, how workable is this insight? By that we go, um, has anyone else in the industry touched this insight, or is this something completely brand new? So how unmet is it? Um, if it, if it isn't, if it hasn't been touched before, then that's a really good opportunity. Willingness. That is, is this a real problem that the market or our organization wants solved? Because if no one wants it solved, why should we bother doing it? Sometimes we come up with, oh, you know, everyone wants this solved. Go, oh, I don't really care. It doesn't really bother me. You know, it's a little inconvenience, but I'm not, you know. And then finally, um, winnable is, can we address this problem faster than our competition? So I usually will get people to score their insight or, you know, the problem or the pain point or bottleneck, whatever it is you want to call it, um, at, on a scale of 10 for each of those. So you've got out of 30. And that really helps. So then when you can pitch, you know, why do we want to come up with a solution for here? Here's why. 
um, it's it's an insight that is winnable, it's workable, and the market are willing, or our team or our organisations willing to have it. Then, when you've done that, you can then start to think about uh, the idea itself. And again, I like to use three criteria. So, how tactically, um, how tactical is it? Um, tech, technical, um, how difficult or easy it is, and then finally. Um, financial, what is the financial return of investment? So tactically, does this um, solve a problem that our organization wants or needs solved? So does it relate to the bigger picture? Because, you know, if we're in the world of inventing toasters and, you know, these other people want us to, you know, come up with a microwave oven and tactically the organization just wants to, to, to focus on that area, that's probably not gonna work for us. Technical is we wanna think about how good are our technical skills to be able to solve this problem. How many unknowns are there? If there's a hundred unknowns and we're going, whoa, then maybe that's not gonna be a great score for it. And then finally, you know, how deep are the market's pockets, so financial, and what could be the rewards that we can gain from that? And again, so I score out of 10 for each of those. So that way it, it helps to take away the, the um, emotional biases that we all have. And you can pitch an idea and say, you know what, look, let me, let me explain. Um, why this is this is an idea tactically it's this um, technically it's that financially it's that and I've never seen anyone reject an idea um, when someone has used that properly if it's scoring zero two and one then they know that you know it's it's self-screening as well it goes actually maybe that isn't a good idea for me to go to so it it both levels yourself stops you from looking from a fool and it, it you know, justifies why this is a compelling idea and a commercial business case. Yes, Nils, one of your strengths is your ability to to analyze uh, what we at one level, what we, we take, like, you know, the, the three types of mistakes, the four types of you, you have this ability to kind of create attributes that that drill down and make distinctions about things that uh, really helps uh, uh, crystallize people's thinking so that's uh, very sounds very very useful um oh, good pre-covid i think you had quite a presence in the united states as well as australia uh i don't know we're, we're sort of uh, a bit bound can't travel overseas but are you able to sort of deliver globally virtually or yeah 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 so i was doing oh gee it was a, an awkward time but i think i was doing some uh, a whole series around 2 a.m for the east coast of the usa usually the because they were lunchtime sessions but um yeah i've definitely been doing uh, still a lot of global work um just last week actually it was an easier one it was just across the ditch with new zealand I was doing some work with there and i'm sure just like yourself there nina you know i think the best thing and this sounds horrible um, you know, not trying to, to, to you know, uh, diminish the, the, the hurt felt by hundreds and thousands of people around the world. But the, from a work perspective, one of the best things that has come out of this, we've all known about remote working and the concept of it for, for years. You know, we're talking this technology and stuff has been around for 10, 15 years. And yet, oh, no, no, we don't need it. We don't need it. And now it, this whole paradigm shift is given people a new opportunity, people that don't have to commute for one hour to get to work and another hour to get home, um, that we can we can actually get stuck into things. And maybe we don't need to go to every meeting because you know that we were probably just there for the chat and, and the catch up, which there is obviously great value. So the interesting thing about the rebound as we kind of, at least Australia, we're a bit lucky, we're kind of coming out of it a lot faster than 
other places is this ability for us to to look at um, you know new business or working models, um, new workplace models where we can have you know, virtual hot desk spaces. And I think where we're heading is a space where people will be doing more, let's call them inspirational culture building sessions at work and um, using remote, um, you know, co-share workspaces to do their work if they don't want to work from home. And it's reducing the cost. There's a lot of environmental um, benefits and social benefits as well. So yeah, it's interesting to see where this goes if we were to do this chat in five years time. Exactly. I mean, the cross-pollination now that we can work globally and, and spe speakers in Australia are certainly doing uh, shift work and uh, working in the middle of the night to uh, reach out to the rest of the world. It just means that um, uh, everybody's able to take advantage of anyone on the planet uh, at, at any uh, uh, agreed time. So that's, that is one of the silver linings of, uh, of, of the COVID experience. So uh, we look forward to this rebound that is, uh, is coming. There is light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> look, it's been um, totally fascinating speaking with you, Nils, and I suppose we could go for another half hour, but um, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure having you as a guest on the podcast. And in the uh, show notes, there'll be uh, links to your uh, to contact you. So thank you very much for uh, answering my questions today and being available. It's an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, thanks for all of the listeners for beaming in. And thank you, Nina, for inviting us. And um, yeah, I'll see you guys later. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.